With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Blog Talk Radio. Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, before we jump in, just our typical read for our sponsor, Audible.com. As you all know, Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information, and you can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want by using Audible.com and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audiblepodcast.com slash noonsmagician. So this is our second podcast this week, but I know the first with you, Dan. So uh, I guess we'll jump in. How scared are you? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I call it scared. I think it's still pretty early. I, I do think that it's hard to deny this, that the basketball team has pretty significant issues. Um. I said it in the roundtable that went out, uh, well, now it would be yesterday. Um, the one saving grace is that this isn't a bad team full of juniors and seniors. It's a it's a team that's underachieving full of freshmen and sophomores. So I know sophomores, for the most part, didn't get a lot of playing time last year. So it, it's a very inexperienced team, as we bring up, you know, pretty often. But it, it still seems true. Um, if anything, this team should get better over the course of the year and and the, the shooting has been so bad that it's almost like, you know, when you see a team that's shooting like 50% from three for a couple of games, you, you feel like they have, you know, they're bound to have an off day. Um, the, the shooting has been so bad, it's almost bad at like an unsustainable rate. Like these guys, um, Cooney, obviously, B.J. Johnson, um, Ron Patterson, they're all guys that we know can shoot the ball. Um Maybe not. They're not proven shooters at the college level, at least those last few. But they're they're both guys that had a reputation for being able to knock down shots. You have to imagine that that you know things will you know the, the percentages will start to rise, and and obviously we have tougher games more consistently coming up when we enter ACC play. But I still think this team will figure it out and, and play better. I don't know if we're going to have a 
a great team. It's probably going to be, you know, a pretty rough year compared to what we're used to. But I'm, I'm still not worried that this team is, you know, just going to be like 500 all year or something like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not in the precipice of disaster, but I guess it really depends on what disaster is. Um, this team shows itself unable to score outside of two players, and I, I think what, what startles me the most is really just how how inconsistent and how spotty guard play has been. I mean, granted, you know, we've said this repeatedly, there are a lot of players who have, who have not really had a ton of time playing together, have not gotten the types of minutes that, you know, you kind of need from players if you want them to, to show up in the clutch. But at the same time, like, it, it is frustrating. We are eight games in now. Um, but we've also lost to, you know, formidable opponents, too. We've really blown out the teams that we're supposed to. And I guess that's the saving grace, especially when you look at, you know, teams like Michigan um, and and others around the country who have, of loss to uh, considerable, considerable underdogs um, through the first few weeks of the season. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, formidable opponents in Michigan. Solid troll. Yeah, we we told totally have the right to troll them, even though we lost to them. Um, but yeah, it, it's that's a valid point. And Iowa even looks good. And Iowa is a team we beat. And they they uh, are they in the top twenty-five now? I think they might be. Um, but maybe uh, UNC at UNC. So I stopped looking so at the really rankings when, when we dropped out of them. <laughs> They're irrelevant now. They don't matter. <laughs> they don't um, matter anymore. So are there even rankings? Uh, no, but uh, you know, people people have downplayed the, the wins where we've looked uh, totally fine because we're used to those. Like we're used to beating teams out of conference. We're used to blowing out teams that we should blow out. Um, but I, I ultimately, I I do agree, and I think that we it'll be nice to get a couple. You know, hopefully when we get to the back end of the non-conference league, we can start getting a couple of those wins. And just so the team knows what it feels like again, these next couple games are going to be tough. Louisiana Tech is not a team to be trifled with. They're a bowl uh, – not a bowl, uh, still in football mode here. They're a, a tournament-caliber team. Um, I think they'll be a good test. And that's a really – that's one of those nice games where it'll help your RPI, and, but you should also win that one. So if Syracuse loses to Louisiana Tech, that's when we can really start getting worried about, you know, is this a tournament team this year? But uh, if they go out and, and, you know, win that game by 10 points and look pretty decent doing it, that, that, that'll be a really nice win going forward. And then Villanova, I mean, that's uh, now a game that most of us, I think, are marking in the, in the loss column, but if, if they can go out and get a win in Nova, that really changes the whole perspective on the team, I think, because Nova is a legit top 10 team. Yeah, I mean, I think a Nova win really just changed things no matter what happens uh, the rest of the way through uh, non-conference play. But, you know what, Louisiana Tech really presents us with, um, I think, a scary proposition. I know it's a game that you and I have identified a couple times, even when the schedule first came out, as as just really, really uh, challenging and, and really had some up to potential. And that's before we knew just how much the team would struggle to score. Um, I mean, Louisiana Tech has scored fairly well and, and, and fairly easily uh, in the early goings of this season, uh, averaging 77 points a game. Um, I mean, they haven't really faced anyone of note. I mean, Temple's probably the best team they face all season. Um, it, it just seems like 
this team can definitely run. Um, they're shooting, I mean, better than us, obviously, but they're not, they're not a great um, or efficient uh, shooting team or a great rebounding team, which is why, you know, d- despite the pace disparity when it comes to Syracuse, um, I'm still definitely willing to, to give us a 10-point advantage here, um, almost entirely on, on the back of, you know, our, our play in the paint. Yeah, and, and that's that's one thing I think Aaron brought it up. Um, I think it was the podcast you guys did the other day. Uh, he, as he said, you know, Syracuse is going to have I mean, maybe not against Villanova, who has a lot of good guards, but against a lot of opponents, Syracuse is going to have the best post players, and in a lot of cases, the two, one or two best players on the court at any given time, assuming Christmas and McCullough continue to play the way they have. So it's not like we're asking you know some guys to transform into Dojo guys. We just need these role players to step up and, and be productive and, and effective at all. And I don't think that's too much to ask. No, definitely not. Um, you know, I, I think so what we're, we're going to have to see and, and why I think we might be in for a couple more close um, close non-conference games is because even the teams we can overwhelm, and, and while Louisiana Tech is a very formidable opponent, I think we can overwhelm them. Um, I, I think that we do need to find ways, whether it's with outside shooting or by driving the lane and trying to draw fouls um, in the paint, we need to find a way for, for our shooters to, to get points, get to the line, get their confidence up. Um, and I think, you know, this isn't necessarily Behan's MO, but, but it might, the course of the season might force his hand. I mean, he might have to, to really, you know, lean on some of these guards in particular uh, a lot more than normal just to try and help get their confidence up and try to find try to find openings in, in these lesser non-conference games, um, you know, to give them their, their, their chances and to give them an opportunity to really prove that they belong uh, on the court. Because right now, I mean, none of them are really showing that they're – that they deserve to be any more than a guy, you know, shuttling in and out for 20 minutes. I mean, granted, we, we're not doing that with these guys, which is why I think we're also suffering – but I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, to see what lineups look like um, over the next probably couple of weeks. Yeah, and you can tell he's starting to do more shuffling than he than he usually does. We saw Benedict start the other night. Um, they have very rarely switches to starting lineups. You know, maybe once every couple of years, but he's already done that. Um, we've seen there are games where Patterson plays more. There are games where Johnson plays more. There are games where Caleb plays 30 minutes, and there are games that Caleb plays, like, 20 minutes. So he's definitely looking for, you know, something to spark the team. Um, the two real – the only two real constants are the two post players, and you can't really afford to have them out for too long um, for any reason. So it, it's uh, – I, I trust that they have will figure something out, and we'll start to find the lineups that click. Um, it really comes down to – when we have McCullough, Christmas, and, and Cooney out there, teams are just able to to make the post a mess and make it difficult for the two big guys to score, which they still do at a decent clip, but it's more difficult when the teams are just stacking the, the inside of the paint area. And then just, they just face our Cooney, who is the, you know, he's inconsistent and whatnot, but he's still, you can't leave him open. Uh, uh, you know, because he'll, he can always hit four threes in a couple minutes on you. So 
if the other two guys on the court can't do anything offensively and the paint is crowded and, and Joko's not hitting uh, any outside shots or mid-range jumpers, which he's supposed to be pretty good at, and then Johnson or Patterson or Benajay isn't knocking down shots, you know, you can't really play three-on-five on offense or two-on-five even and have, uh, you know, just hope that Christmas and McCullough can throw it off the backboard and get lucky. So we need those guards to step up. That's, uh, you know, it's a pretty obvious answer for everything, but really what the, what the issue is right now. Yeah, I, I think that all kind of nails the head on the head. Uh, the, it's a nail on the head, excuse me. Um, the other thing we kind of talked about, I know we've discussed it internally. It seems like it's definitely been um, on the lips of commenters, uh, is, is the defense. Um, we saw it in the first game kind of start the season. It just seems like transition is not is not their strong suit, to be honest. With you. In those closing minutes of, of the St. John's game, it, it just seemed like defensively this team's lost a step in comparison to uh, the last few iterations. Um, do you feel like uh, that's an even bigger concern uh, compared to shooting lows? Do you think that it's something that's just going to develop over the course of the season? Um, I, I do think that effective anyway that um, this team has has some great defenders and I think some some very great um, high risk high reward guys. I mean, Cooney is kind of thrives in that role, but I think you know without without some real strength um, in that back line. I mean, Christmas is great, but he's not really that, like, elite, elite uh, rim defender. And I think McCullough still has, like, has some room to grow as well. Um, I, I think Cooney might have to lay off the, you know, the, the, the little more risky plays, unfortunately, for the time being, at least until, uh, you know, everyone else in that defense really comes into form. And then in that case, you know, you have the rest of a very solid zone to back you up. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting balance they're trying to strike because this is a team that does get out and run more than last year's team um, with missed results. But when a team struggles to shoot, you want them to get out in the in the open court and you know get easy transition baskets. But at the same time, the defense isn't quite as experienced or quite as effective as it always has been. And some of that's just it's early in the year. Um, but especially against a team like St. John's, that's a heat up from outside you know, you're sacrificing a potential offense by hanging back and, and playing really tight. See, we saw last year the team never got out of transition but was also really good defensively because they weren't leaking out, whereas some other teams that haven't been as good defensively have, you know, flourished in transition. So it's definitely a balance that you want to try to strike, and, and we've seen teams like the 2009-2010 team, which I feel like is the example for every time we bring up anything good about Syracuse basketball, they were great, you know, they could score in any part of the court and they could shoot and they could also, they were deadly in transition, but they had elite defenders that didn't need to leak out early and they also had great athletes. So it's not quite, the team hasn't quite balanced that well yet, especially with the shooting woes. Um, but it's definitely something that will be interesting to see if Beheim, you know, pulls the strings back a little bit and focuses more on trying to win ugly games like last year or if he continues to try to, uh, you know, have his team take a couple more risks and try to do easy baskets. And I think we'll probably see more of the latter when we play, like, the Cornells and the, the other teams late, a little later on. But uh, I think Villanova, you don't want them to be in the open court. So um, it should be interesting there to see what the strategy looks like. 
No, that's a fact. Um, I guess looking around, and we'll circle back to Syracuse, but I guess looking around the country, um, are there any trends you're seeing right now? I, I think what I've noticed, um, and, and I brought this up during the podcast uh, yesterday with Aaron, is, you know, we're, we're seeing almost too much parity in college basketball right now, and, and it seems that it's just it's become a very – I've been saying this for a few years now, but it's become a very watered-down product. Um, and I think that while the upsets are fun here and there, I think that you could point to them as kind of a case in point of, of why the product is is not looking its best. I mean, even even a team that looks like a juggernaut like Kentucky, um, you know, struggled a ton with, with Columbia tonight. I mean, it just seems to me like this was another college basketball season full of full of flawed teams and and, and a couple of teams tripping and falling into a you know, final four berths that may or may not be deserved. Yeah, I mean, it's all relative. I mean, Kentucky, people asked like they were going to run the table and asked, talked about if they could beat the 76ers. If you watch Kentucky, they're easily the best team in the country, but they can't shoot. Like, they they aren't, like, an unflawed team. They're just really deep and athletic. But if, if some team goes and bombs threes on them, they're going to have a tough time. They're going to lose the game or two this year. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're not a special bunch. That they're a really good team. It's just um, there are no un- there are no perfect teams in college basketball this year for, and there's a ton of reasons why. I know you guys touched on them in the last podcast, um, but I mean, so much of it comes down to players leaving early, and a lot of, we just lose we lose so many players in college basketball who then go off and you know chase an NBA dream, which I can't blame them for at all, but it's. It, it stinks that these data, so many, I feel like there's probably 20 or 30 legitimate college stars who probably wouldn't leave if uh, if they knew that they weren't going to get drafted, but they all believe they're going to be drafted because if you're scoring 19 points a game in college and, and you know, lighting, lighting it up, why wouldn't you? And then you realize that the NBA is a whole other ball game and, you know, those guys go, in your, go to Europe and they make it, you know, they make good money and whatnot, but would they give up their junior and senior seasons for that, which they could go do, you know, for the same amount probably two years later or the next year? I don't know. So hopefully some of these, uh, you know, we, we've read a lot about um, possible reforms. Even Mark Emmert today I read was open to the idea of players who uh, don't make NBA rosters or who end up in the D League coming back to college. I'm not sure exactly how that would work, like what the timetable would be, but it, it just seems like a no-brainer to expand the ability for players to figure out what their value is to the NBA um, and then make a decision on college after that, even if it comes, you know, after the draft. I, I, don't, I really hope that we see some changes. And it, it would just be good for everyone. I mean, the NBA would, would be less watered down with college players that they don't, know, they don't know what to do with. The college team would retain a lot of guys who are, you know, not NBA material but are still really good players at this level. And... It just seems like uh, everyone would benefit in that part, and that if we do just some reform. And I, I know Beheim talked about it too on his uh, his radio show last week, and he had some interesting ideas. So hopefully we see stuff like that going forward, um, because it really is the product's not as good as it was even just a couple of years ago, because so many people are leaving early. Right. No, I, I think that definitely makes sense. I think to me. I know Sam said this one, and a lot of other people have too. Is the uh, is that college uh, is like the college baseball model 
um, that sort of either declare after high school or declare after uh, after three years. And I think what, what that to me um, does is it really uh, really puts an emphasis on on the college game. I think it really um, helps the product both in the D League um, and elsewhere. I, I think in general, it's I just don't see how you know anybody really loses out here. I mean, except for the athletes. But again, if you're talented enough to to go pro at 18, uh, then in that case, uh, you know, might as well. I think that this is kind of a best of both worlds situation. Yeah, it just it, it can't be what it is now. What it is now is pretty much the worst possible thing. Like the the uh, cause even before I, I feel like before. Uh, players were coming out of high school, or when they were coming out of high school, we didn't have as many one and done in college. Like, people who were going to college were kind of in it for, maybe not the long haul, they weren't all staying four years, but you know, the ones who thought they could make the NBA right away went, and college it was the rest who, aside from the occasional Carmelo Anthony, who you know, we, we all know the stories about how he wanted to stay, and whatnot, he ended up blowing up, but the vast majority ended up staying for three or four years. So it just needs to be – there needs to be something to change, and, and almost any idea that's been floated out there would be an improvement, I think. Yeah, I think that's dead on. Because you know what? I mean, the, the rule was made – and the rule was rightfully made to, to prevent the kind of rash of um, – like, I know, like, the year Kwame Brown was, like, the first overall, there was, what, it was, like, 17 or 18 high school kids selected. I'm pretty sure no more than, like, two of them ever really did much. Um, in the NBA, I, I think it was kind of an overreaction rule to to a phenomena over you know five to seven year stretch. When when I think a, a, a much you know a long game kind of course correction would have done them uh, you know wonders um, if we look at things you know a few years down the road. I mean, you look at you know a guy like uh, Emmanuel Mudelay who, you know, was going to head to SMU, ended up heading to China, and now he could end up being uh, cut due to injury. It's, it, it's silly, and, and there's, there should be, there should be locking different paths to getting the most talented players in the country and in the world um, on the court somehow in some way. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even be opposed to something, and I know it's probably impossible because the NCAA is still so, you know, so behind what it needs to be. But, you know, if a player gets drafted in the first round out of high school and, and the NBA team wants him to finish an experience rather than going to the D League, let him commit to a school as well. And, and if they're not ready to have him, say, hey, you can go play for Coach K or Bayheim or Bill Self, and then we'll evaluate you at the end of the year, but you're still under our, our uh, you know, we still own the rights and maybe set up some kind of deferred payment or something. I don't know. There are just so many other options. And right now it's just the players have such little resource for figuring out the right thing to do. And so many of them would rather gamble on themselves than wait and see. And I can't really blame them because putting off a year of payment, even if it ends up being payment from Europe or, or you know, for so many of these kids, even a daily check is better than the alternative. Um, even if it's not much to you know speak of, so it's I, I can't blame the players at all, but I, I do wish that there was a better system for them figuring out where they 
you know, where they stand in, in relative, uh, relative to the NBA game, which I, I think a lot of them probably underestimate what a jump it is, and I, I can see why they would. Exactly. Um, I guess why don't we move on to a little, uh, a little halftime over here. Uh, before we jump in, just wanted to give another shout-out to uh, sponsor, audible.com. Uh, Trainers and Absolute Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible. They're a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and info, and they have 150,000 titles to choose from, which you can listen to on any device that you may own. Even if you have a Zune player from back in the day, I'm sure you would be able to find your books there. Maybe. Just assuming, really. Um, if you want to sign up at our URL, audiblepodcast.com slash newsmagician, you can get yourself a free audiobook and a one-month free trial of the service. Um, a couple of books I found for the occasion here. Louisiana Tech is our upcoming opponent. Uh, number one, uh, Carl Malone, The Remarkable Story of One of Basketball's Greatest Power Forwards. Carl Malone went to Louisiana Tech. He's from Louisiana. Um, so it's interesting that he ended up on the jazz of all teams. The original home of the Jazz, as most know, was New Orleans in Louisiana. Fun little circle there. Uh, the other one that I found here is a, it's a fiction novel, Louisiana Fever, where people in Louisiana end up having an Ebola-like virus that ends up being a pandemic that sweeps the city. So, Are you telling me that... Are you telling me that the origins of the nickname Jazz wasn't from the uh, amazing jazz scene of Salt Lake City? No, I mean the illustrious Mormon jazz scene is <laughs> should not be under underplayed. But we, uh, yeah, I, I still think that. I mean, at this point, the the. The irony of the jazz name is is part of its appeal. I, I agree. I think it's too late. I mean, the, the Hornets thing, like there was enough. You know, it was it was a, a fairly quick turnaround from Hornets to moving the team out to uh, Bobcats and then back to Hornets and the Pelicans and everything. Like that all happened in a pretty quick manner. I think it was probably within you know maybe what twelve years or so. Jazz is just like you, you can't change jazz. It's it's a really doofing this name, but it, it is what it is now. Right. Yeah, and I mean, like, yeah, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe it's, it's different. But now, at this point, um, there's enough cachet um, in, in the name, and I doubt Salt Lake citizens would, uh, would really see things any other way. Yeah, if they don't bring it uh, to Utah, they will. <laughs> yeah, speaking of a place where no one drinks, uh what have you been drinking, Dan? Um, not nothing. <laughs> um I've had a couple uh, a couple of decent things recently. Uh I, t- I tried Captain Lawrence's pumpkin, which is uh like most things, Captain Lawrence pretty satisfying. Um I, I don't remember if I had had that one before, but you know, Captain Lawrence is one of my favorite breweries, so I wasn't too shocked. Um I had one of my, you know, relative. I'd say it's called one of my standbys in terms of things you can get pretty easily. Um, Juice Island's 312 Urban Wheat, which I bring up every so often. Uh, but the, the headliner this week was definitely um, 
had the rare Voss from Oma Gang, uh, their Belgian Pale Ale, which is one of the best beers I think they make. <clears throat> had a couple of those watching the end of the Cirrus St. John game, so that was the highlight of that day. Um, but yeah, Oma Gang obviously makes so many fantastic things, but the, the rare Voss is, is definitely up there for them. Yes, for me. I know I mentioned these on the podcast, well, some of them on the podcast yesterday, but at the same time, you know what, it's not the worst thing um, to mention. Again, I'll mention in the comments since we kind of didn't really jump into beer talk in the comments we usually do. Um, had myself a three-floyd zombie dust yesterday, one of the finest pale ales around. Highly recommend people finding that. Uh, if you can, you pretty much have to be in the general Indiana um, Northern Kentucky, Chicago area, if you want to have a shot at any of it. Um, also recommend uh, Monsters Park by Modern Times, the Great Imperial Stout, um, for those who are around here. Some Seven Swans of Swimming at the Quad from the brewery. doesn't have that uh, that really kind of sharpness, though, that I've seen from other quads. It just has a really smooth kind of raisiny finish. Um and then from St. Archer, also a California brew, um, Girl Skateboard, it's a Hoppy Pilsner. It's actually a, a very good Hoppy Pilsner. I'd say it's kind of in the same boat as uh, as a Pivo Pils from, uh, from Firestone or even a uh, Prima Pils from Victory um, for those on the East Coast that they're probably familiar with, with the latter. And... Oh, and I also had Ninja, Ninja versus Unicorn. It's a really good double IPA from Pipeworks in Chicago. Uh, I think that's most of what I've been drinking. Very nice. I, I definitely haven't yeah. heard of Ninja versus Unicorn, but I kind of want to. Yeah, you should definitely uh, really find a way to get some because honestly, like, I I think it's a really you know, fun one, and and I think in general there's just there's a lot of good beer coming out of the Midwest. It just a lot of it doesn't have. It's a lot like LA in that regard. This doesn't have a ton of uh, a ton of circulation outside of its general area. So I would say for those who want to trade for stuff or those who can find travel to the Midwest, I would say uh, go for it. I actually have some uh, some breaking news relevant to our interest. Um, according to a random person on Twitter, a uh, source close to Paul Chris told me that Paul plans on winning a national championship at Pitt and is not interested in taking <laughs> the job. So close the book on that one, guys. Wisconsin, you better go in another direction. Paul Paul's bringing number 10 back to the Panthers. Yeah, the fact that schools won 10 doesn't make any sense to me. But... Yeah, you. Uh, they can do that all they want, but they're not gonna. They're not gonna win a national championship anytime soon. But. <laughs> and I also don't know if Paul Chris will be their coach anytime soon either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if that's really Paul Chris' kind of, you know, life goal, then, then great. So. That's Although I, I will say he's probably the clubhouse leader for that job. I mean, they're dead late in the process. Wisconsin clearly didn't have any idea this was going to happen because why would it happen? 
Um, uh, we're obviously, if you if you haven't seen heard the uh, the story from Wednesday night, uh, <laughs> uh, Coach Anderson at Wisconsin took the job at Oregon State because college football makes no sense ever. Also true. Yeah, I don't really under. I mean, I know you and I talked about it. Don't necessarily understand that one. But no, I would argue. I personally argue that Oregon State is one of the two worst jobs in the Pac-12, and even if the Big Ten isn't the Pac-12 at this point, Wisconsin's still like a top four or five job in that conference. Um, so yeah, I guess he really didn't like uh, the Midwest. Yeah, it seemed like from everything I saw that like family was a big deal. Um, so that kind of makes sense. Um, because, you know what, like, if you're in the day, like, a lot of these coaches, you know, they have wives, they have kids, um, and if your kids really are unhappy in the Midwest and really would rather be closer to home, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not sure how much closer, I mean, it obviously is, but I wouldn't say that Oregon State, you know, and Corvallis is dynamically closer to to Utah State and its campus than, than Wisconsin, but... Um, I mean, I guess if they have family closer, at least it, it makes it a little bit easier if everyone's, you know, in the same time zone or two versus, you know, spread across several. Again, it's – I was listening to something on a KLAC. I actually do listen to sports talk radio around here. Um, and then they were saying, you know, it, it's – the 99% of coaches are are these, like, are pretty much vagabonds who, who, who are just – scared of, of what happens next in their careers. So it's incredibly, it's incredibly futile to, to try and make any sort of generalizations or decisions about a coach's mindset because absolutely no one but a coach could even begin to be inside a coach's mind. Yeah, I think the real question here is which has the more flourishing jazz scene, Madison, Wisconsin, or uh, Corvallis, Oregon, because we know that it's what, you know, gets those Utahns going. Uh, so I guess Corvallis probably has a slightly, you know, a, a better scene for that. Right. I mean, we shall see. Uh, Corvallis is, for the most part, seem like they actually have a, a lot of um, – power with coaches. I mean, even a guy like Dennis Erickson, like, it wasn't easy to show him the door, despite overall it wasn't a great tenure. Um, you know, Riley came around for two different stints um, and kind of saw the writing on the wall, and to be honest, did Oregon State a huge favor. Saw the writing on the wall, knew that he wasn't going to last more than another season with, with a lot of role players gone next year. Um, so he kind of, you know, allowed them to get a jump on it this year, um, I, again, I'm sure more will come out about how Gary Anderson ended up in Corvallis, but uh, you have to think Riley really did them a favor, almost in a similar way to to what Chris Peterson did. Um, I mean, definitely more talent in Boise, but a, a, very, a similar situation to what Chris Peterson did for Boise State um, on the way out to Washington. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's also, I mean, Riley also had that, like, wild contract thing where, what was it, that every time he 
had a winning record. He got a year extension added to the end of his contract or something. So he was basically never going to leave unless he just stopped winning completely. So, and like you said, I mean, these guys stuck around for a while there. So maybe it's just the fact that there are realistic expectations at Oregon State compared to a place like, I don't know, Wisconsin seems to keep, you know, they haven't really fired anyone recently, but maybe the uh, pressure in the Big Ten was, was harder for him to deal with than what he will face at Oregon State. Definitely true. Um, so yeah, where do we want to go from here? I mean, still plenty of time. So you and I can always divert into football for literally hours on end um, if called upon. But we obviously don't have to. You know what? While we're here on football, why don't we uh, why don't we dive into the playoff things? I know I, I had my thoughts that I put up on the site on Sunday, um, and I realized like you and I never really. Uh, never really spoke much about it. Yeah, we can do that. I mean, it's uh, it's probably better than talking about Syracuse shooting 21% from three, so let's do it. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so I guess starting, do you think that the, that the committee made the right decisions? Mo- moving away from, we'll get to the issues with their rankings the week before the final rankings, but just solely on, did they pick the four best teams, yes or no? Yeah, if, if you're going by the theory that they throw the rankings out every week and restart them, I really didn't have a major issue with them. I thought you could have argued any of those three teams, which in my mind means, hey, let's move to 16 sooner than later. Um, but it was also one of those weird years. We, I went back and looked, and uh, as far back as I went, which was like 2008 or so, we haven't had a year where every major conference had a champion with no more than one loss. So this was a very, it was it was unfortunate for the committee that this was the year where everyone was good or everyone was pretty pretty even atop the conferences and we had six teams that were all, you know, very legitimate candidates um, where, you know, maybe next year there's a more normal situation where you're debating two law teams and it's and you know there's no head-to-head issue like between Baylor and TCU and there's no crazy development like with Ohio State where they overcame so much stuff early in the season to become a really good team but anyway I mean on its face you know Ohio State won a championship game by 59 points um, against a team that was ranked what 13th that had a really good defense all year um, it, it's hard to argue against that uh, I think Baylor and, and TCU, you know, both are great teams, and they both could have made it. And I wouldn't really have had a major argument or a major, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been totally displeased with any of those three making it in. So it's hard for me to get too upset about it, although I was rooting for TCU just for the underdog story of it. Yeah, I, mean, I was rooting for TCU as well, and I felt like in general, um, if I had to choose between Ohio State um, and TCU and Baylor, I was going with TCU. Um, just because while TCU did lose to Baylor, I think TCU's overall body of work just seemed um, better, more more fundamentally sound. Um, I mean, if you're looking at the thing that most, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the non-concentrated schedule really wasn't a, a big impact to those three teams. So I think you just kind of have to look at, okay, you all lost one game. What what was the quality of that loss? Um 
you know, Baylor lost by 14 to a 7-5 and five West Virginia team. Yes, a very good 7-5 and five West Virginia team, but still 7-5. and five. Um, You know, TCU lost on the road in the final seconds to Baylor by three. Uh, and then Ohio State loses by 14 to a Virginia Tech team that, while may have been good then, was not was not good at all by the end of the season. Um, and I just – it's very hard to see how that team – that third one, Ohio State, um, comes out ahead of the other two, um, you know, given everything. Uh, I think that, like, Spencer Hall brought this up and said, you know, you have people that that have always kind of functioned in a groupthink environment and continually um, are pushed towards safe consensus-building choices. And when you're left with, you know, two tough choices, Baylor and, and TCU, and, and four very easy ones, you're going to go with the four very easy ones and move on. Um, I think that, that recency bias, that, that thing that they continually said was not a factor, was indeed a factor. Um, come the end, um, and I just think overall, while while they ultimately gave us four very good teams, and I think probably four of the five or six best teams, um, I, I think you're going to see some changes to the process, most notably... Um, I doubt you're going to see uh, seeded rankings uh, coming out week to week. I, I think they might just kind of lump sum it in alphabetical order and go, all right, here they are. Like, you guys kind of quibble about it amongst yourselves because, to be honest, it might actually uh, result in a more successful um, and, and exciting lead-up because no one will know the order. Everyone will just know the teams in contention, and it allows for a lot more you know, talking head and, and, and blogger fodder uh, to, to decipher really who's on top. I don't know. I, I think we will see the rankings as they were this year. Um, I think they did well for ESPN, and it allowed from week to week. They said today, like, someone just came out, and I forget who it was, um, just said, you know, it tells the fans in contention who they need to root against and who they need to root for. They're really direct comparisons, you know, from week to week between, you know, Auburn fans having rooted against uh, Mississippi State and, and all this, you know, how, however it worked out from week to week. But um, so I, I would be surprised if they downplayed the week-to-week rankings or made them, you know, less controversial. I, I don't think that sells. Um, as for Ohio State, I, I, have a tr- I have trouble reconciling the recency bias thing, which I, I agree they're, you know, Beating Wisconsin in, in a conference championship you know, doesn't mean that that's what that team is every week. But at the same time, I don't think that Ohio State should be penalized for getting better during the season, which, you know, obviously the Virginia Tech loss is the worst that any of those three teams has. But Virginia Tech seemed to be a different team early in the year. Maybe they weren't. Um, but Ohio State was definitely a different team earlier in the year. So I have trouble just automatically throwing out Ohio State because of what they did on September 7th when clearly by uh, December December 7th they were, you know, a fairly elite team that had blown the doors off of almost everyone. Um, and even the hiccups that Ohio State had, the Indiana game, even part of the Michigan game, were far less so than the ones that Baylor had against West Virginia or Baylor had against Texas Tech or even TCU had against Kansas. Um, so again, and then I do agree that Ohio State was the easy sell because of their branding, which the committee will never admit to, 
but also because then they got to avoid the Baylor TCU head-to-head issue. And who cares? That they, I mean, no one really cares if they put Baylor at five and TCU at six. No one will remember that. But um, putting Ohio State ahead of those two definitely made it easier. I don't disagree there. I just don't think they were a demonstrably worse team than the other two. Um, but again, I mean, it's, it's fine to argue all three. I totally see where Baylor fans are upset and, and TCU fans are upset, and I see where Ohio State fans would have been upset uh, if they had not left out. I mean, the galling part to me um, is that Ohio State fans and both those I know and and those on social media, after blowing out Wisconsin, they all felt like they were in. And and to me, that's what I couldn't understand. Um, And almost all of it was predicated on we just literally ransacked um, a very good Wisconsin team. Uh, we shut down the nation's best runner in Melvin Gordon, and we're and we're the Ohio State University. We're pretty much the three talking points that they were able to lean on. Um, and to me, it was it was surprising. But as soon as all that started to develop, and you started seeing who was where, and it, people joked about it, but who was where for the announcement um, in terms of the ESPN reporters. Um, how, when the coaches poll came out and included Ohio State at four, um, it, it just seemed like things were going to go that way, and it did. Uh, folks have said this too. If it wasn't if it wasn't TCU and Baylor, if it was instead Texas and Oklahoma, I, I think you have a different story, and, and it's unfortunate. Um, you know, it's tough to say what went on behind closed doors and what went on in that room, but you have to wonder uh, at least a little bit. Um, if, if they should, you know, be forced to kind of evaluate these teams anonymously uh, without names, but, you know, without advanced metrics and without uh, too many numbers attached to them, it's very hard to look at these teams um, and, and not at least have an idea uh, of who they may be. I I, I feel for the kids at, at TCU and Baylor, I... But, you know, at the same time, you can only feel so bad. Um, I, I think that, that Bob Bolsey is kind of to blame a little bit here. Not completely. I think there's a lot of blame to go around. But Bolsey is, is, is one who you can definitely blame for someone who, you know, played up one true champion and then proceeded to submit two true champions. Um, there's just not a lot you can say to him, and Art Bryles called him out and others have too, uh, that if you're going to submit co-champions and everyone else has won, um, you're sending mixed messages to a committee uh, that you're trying to hedge your bets. Yeah, I don't know how much of an impact that had um, because the committee knows, like, you can see through, oh, the Big 12, you know, just happened to name Baylor. I mean, people know Baylor BCCU. Um, so I don't know if that was a clinching point or whatever. I, I understand they weigh conference championships, but I still think having that game is more impactful than just a conference identifying a champion um, and just having a 13th game helps in general. Um, so maybe the whole Big 12 no schedule of Hawaii next year if they you know, don't want to add more play more uh, more members. But, um, yeah, I, I do hope that the whole, like, brand recognition of a team doesn't play. And I, I it's probably naive to think it doesn't, at least, at least not as a really low-end tiebreaker. 
Um, but you, you, that would be a problem. Um, and maybe that's just like one of the natural biases of college football that is unavoidable. But I certainly hope that if we have a, a less, you know, close race between two schools uh, down the road, that a lesser, you know, Oklahoma team doesn't beat out uh, a much more deserving um, Iowa team because it's Oklahoma. Like, I hope that, they, you know, when things are this close, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to argue between those three teams, but hopefully that doesn't end up being how this playoff is decided every year because that would be a real shame. Right. And I think, you know, while we all hate the, the tournament committee um, in basketball, at the end of the day, they do have numbers at their disposal, even if they're flawed. Uh, they do kind of have to rationalize these things. Um, and there is set criteria. Uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, they're also deciding in 68 teams and not just four. Um, you know, name brand just simply doesn't play in. I mean, look at teams that have had number one seeds in recent years. I mean, Wichita State, Gonzaga, St. Joseph, schools that just don't carry the same cachet as a Kentucky or a Duke or a Syracuse or North Carolina. And yet they've gotten the chance to, to be a number one seed and prove themselves, even if, you know, maybe some shady seeding to go with it, as we saw last year for Wichita State having to face Kentucky. Um, I just think that, yeah, this seems far too similar to the BCS, which focused a lot on brand names, a lot on television, um, and, and a lot on what was going to draw the most. And, and, and yes, well, that's part of the committee's job is to kind of create the matchups, but no one asked them to, to choose the teams based on the matchups or based on the brand names and value and to have such a vague set of rules um, spelled out to us each week. Like, to be honest, I'd rather Jeff Long wasn't available um, to, to speak to us each week just because of how how much he lacked in terms of, of giving us any insight um, into their thinking. It was just, I, I felt like he did more to complicate the process than was necessary. Yeah, and it's difficult to have one person step out there for, what, like 90 seconds every week to represent the thoughts, which clearly wasn't, it wasn't uh, an entire group you know, to thought together is he was trying to represent the, you know, general feelings of a 12-person panel, which is probably an impossible situation for him. Um, at the end of the day, he could have just said, hey, we had a bunch of people who liked these three schools and the Ohio State people just outnumbered the rest. Like, but he can't just say that because then it makes it seem like, you know, then people start pounding their fists and saying, well, there's all these big 10 people on the committee and and obviously there are people with more connections to Ohio State than TCU just in general. So I think, you know, he probably didn't do the best job in explaining things, but it's also a really thankless position he was put in. And he pretty much admitted that. I think today he, someone asked him during that panel they were having um, of what his advice to the next chair would be, and he said, don't do it. So clearly this wasn't like the easiest thing in the world for, for him to do either. I don't think it was, I don't think anything that was, was done maliciously. I think it was more just a really difficult uh, situation, especially for the first year of the system. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think, you know, you and I talked about the, the chaos element over the summer and just said, like, what we could see this year. I, I think that this, I think this year gave a lot of hints into uh, what could happen in the future. I think it gave them a lot of, of tools to kind of play with going forward and a lot of, you know, lessons to be learned. I guess 
because of the individuals we have involved and because of, you know, again, like, like Spencer Hall said on SB Nation, um, you know, this group think and the types of personalities that, that we're, we're employing in, in these positions, at the end of the day, I'm curious how much how much and how many lessons that they're actually going to take from all of this um, and how much of this they're going to take to heart. Um, I, I think that I think that, that they all believe in their hearts that they made the right decision. Um, I don't think they made the wrong decision necessarily, but, you know, again, it, it, just, it gets confusing when, when you think about, you know, what, what's actually going to change, what actually needs to change, and, and and what what are fans finally going to be happy with? Because I'm not sure we know. And maybe just the fact that it became such an you know uh, odorous thing for them to do that they just decide, hey, let's bump this up to six, take five conference champions, and then we can argue over one slot, or you know bump it up to eight and take the five conference champions and argue about three at larges, and that becomes a lot easier than literally taking four at larges and having to make them perfect, like, say, Big 12, bigger two members, figure this out, and we can have a lot of this just play out on the field, and then we'll have minimum minimal decisions to make afterwards. Because, I, I, again, like, I think that this year was probably going to be a rare circumstance where there were six teams that weren't that far apart. For most years, I think there'll be a lot more separation, um, at least after the top, like, two or three. Uh I think hopefully this year it becomes like the doomsday scenario really early so that we can start getting moving on even a better system. But I still really prefer this to the BCS. I still think it's a, a huge upgrade over that. If only because there are four teams. Agreed. Um, well, before we wrap up, I just wanted to grab some quick news. Um, I just threw it up on Slack for those listening is our little internal chat. Um, there are some murmurs that Mitch Kimball may be leaving. Not that we're really surprised, but just as a FYI. Wouldn't shock me. I mean, there's a, there must be a reason why Syracuse all of a sudden started recruiting a bunch of 2016-2017 uh, quarterbacks recently. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, if he does, then all the power to him. If he doesn't, then hopefully he, you know, enjoys his time at Syracuse and can battle for a starting job. But, you know, I, I don't cast aspersions of people leaving the program because, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably a positive that more players are transferring and getting themselves in a better situation now than they did before. Agreed. And I know we said the same thing, like, when John Kinder left. It, it just – there's – I mean, and when Kinder left, there, there were even less quarterbacks. Now there's there's so many quarterbacks. Um, so many guys continually, uh, you know, getting offered. We just have a lot of, I mean, unfortunately, we're not sure who is the answer um, at the position, but, you know, we definitely have um, a lot of talent at, at the quarterback spot, um, and we just, I guess, need to decide, you know, who's really best. Um, if Kimball... If Kimball can find better pieces elsewhere, then, you know, absolutely. I, I think that he really needs to find the best spot for him. I wish him the best in um, 
I wasn't necessarily enamored with what I saw from him this year. That's not a knock on him overall, just a knock within in comparison to the other guys who we could have and can start a quarterback. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess we'll see. Uh, I wouldn't doubt if he leaves. Uh, it frees up, frees up some, some room. It frees up some room both on the quarterback depth chart and, and I think roster-wise, too, for us to maybe go after some other um, some other options if there were other holes we needed to fill. So, yeah, just another day in Syracuse football, I suppose. Yeah, and it's a point even in the direction of uh, – I mean, I know Lester said that he, his having a running quarterback actually makes his system better. Um, I believe that was the argument he had when, when asked about it, but it seems like his is more based on, you know, you could do it with a pocket thrower where McDonald's really couldn't. Um, Lester's, it seems, more like uh, the Marone system where you could kind of do either way. Um, in terms of having a, a pure pocket passer or or someone who's a dual threat, so maybe you know Kimball kind of saw the the writing on the wall there and decided to go, you know maybe he tries to go find somewhere where his running ability is more valued. Where whereas you know Long is is more of a thrower and and Austin Wilson is as well, and then Hunt's the veteran, so he's not going to go anywhere. Absolutely agree. So I guess on that, uh, we kind of wrap it up. I know we uh, we kind of bounced around a lot, but I feel like given the state of Syracuse basketball, um, I, I think we kind of covered off on everything. And I think that you know what, the playoffs are always always something fun to to chat about. Glad we uh, glad we got a few minutes to do that. Yeah, and if people didn't want to hear that, then they could easily get over that section of the podcast. But I'm sure everyone will enjoy our hot playoff take. <laughs> Could not agree more. Um, so yeah, on that note, uh, Dan, thanks as always for joining. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Of course. So for Troy News, is an absolute podcast. That was Dan. I'm John. You can review and rate us on uh, Blog Talk Radio and over on iTunes. It really does help, so we'd appreciate it. Um, and be sure to go check out uh, audiblepodcast.com slash newsmagician. That also helps us out. So, yeah, tons of things you can do to help us. I hope that we're helping you by uh, filling your eardrums with Syracuse talk and other related matters for um, around an hour each week. And, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in, and go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 
and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.